I am the victim of cancel culture, Tran- transatlantic cancel culture. Oh, guys, can you give me one second? Just give me one second. I'm sorry. So it's like an Iranian mock fire. What, what, when was the last time you saw? Look at he's doing. He's on a landline. He's on a phone that has a phone. It's a handset. A, For people listening at home, John Podoris is holding this ancient contraption to his face, and it's the handset of a telephone. It's crazy. Sorry. I'm you sorry. Just, you held a handset. That was, was wild. Oh, my God. It's the weirdest thing. I haven't seen one of those in years. Hey, it's the end of April, and this is Glop Culture. I'm John Podhortz in New York, also in New York. Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hi, John. How are you? I'm all right. And in Washington, <laughs> recovering from various illnesses, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Greetings. It's good to be here. How are you feeling? I'm, I'm, I'm on the mend. I mean, you can't do this shaggy dog thing. i got to tell people. I have periodic bouts of, of pretty bad diverticulitis, and... Uh, it really wipes me out for a couple of days. And then added to it is when I have to deal with marauding armies of morons on Twitter oh. who uh, don't take into account that like, maybe my life schedule is different than what they want it to be. And so I've been, I've been, in tr- been besieged by trolls in the last week or so. And What does that mean, besieged by trolls? I don't, I don't. Well, it, it began, you know, so I, 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 I I particularly resent people. You know, I do these dog tweets in the morning. and yeah, Why people, are you writing about Biden's budget? Basically, that's it, right? It's like the Twitter, the, 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 oh, the yeah. subculture of Twitter that is like, not only are you, the fact that you haven't tweeted about the thing I wanted you to tweet about, right you now, haven't done on my timeline, and you're not angry enough about it on my timeline, proves something. And proves that you, I, you are secretly a Democrat. That's right. That's what it proves. That's right. Proves that you're happy that we're all going to go into debt and uh, <laughs> and that I I like flan or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's all so friggin' idiotic. Does um, God have a flan for you? Yeah, exactly right. It's an old meme. Um, I, I think I've seen that on your Twitter uh, or your Twitter responses every now and then, which I kind of enjoy. I do love the idea of like people demanding free stuff when they demand it. It's like free, tweet about this now for free. Like oh okay. I'm so I'm so sorry I didn't give you any free ins- I mean the free part I just think is fantastic. I mean I, I have to say that I you know as you guys know I no longer tweet but I get a lot of email and um, I get emails from you know ordinary people uh, whom I don't know or just readers readers of my column or something like that and they might write me some sort of like insulting something like a tweet you know sort of insulting mm-hmm. thing or something like that. And I am much more prone to get angry and, like, try to and, and dash off some kind of an insulting retort than I am to express sincere gratitude when somebody <laughs> writes me something really nice, which right. you would think I would go, well, this is really the reason you do this, is to have people appreciate what you do and say nice things to you. Like, that's the real reward. But there is something about this machine, this computer, and the way we get information uh, that, I don't know what it is, your amygdala or whatever system it is, is much more triggered by negativity than the positive. And it's, 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 it's so emotionally bad. It's just bad. Exhausting. Yeah, I mean, I am um, 
I also have this I mean, added problem going back to the earliest days of the corner where um, my brain kind of, I mean, I know consciously and intellectually this is not the case, mm-hmm. but my brain consolidates email feedback as if it's all coming from one person. And so, like, I'll get yelled at about X, and I'll get yelled at about Y, and I'll get mad at the inconsistency between X and Y, because even though they're from different people, you know, <laughs> it's like you know, make right. up your mind, internet, you know, stop giving me this criticism from both different places. And the other thing is about the nice emails, and I get a lot, and I also get a lot of like thoughtful emails from people who want to ask me a question about something I've written or have an alternative theory, and it's all fine and 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 polite and the thoughtful emails my reaction is oh this deserves a more thoughtful response and so i'll get to this later yeah no. and then you never get back to it and so you're such a dick whereas before you could have just said hey thanks for your email which seems so rude compared to what you should send but it's better than sending nothing at all and i i, I struggle with this constantly i i do what i do is i put an exclamation mark at the end of thanks for your email <laughs> Because it feels like that, an, that an, shows it feels that you really care. No, I really do yeah. that. Thank, thanks for listening. Really, uh, but I can't. When I open one up and I see that it's a it's a long email, it's like I, I don't have time to read this and, and and answer it. And what if I read it and answer it and then I get another response? Now I'm in a a correspondence that I just simply don't have time for. I don't. Right. I don't. I don't. Right. I'm barely. I barely keep my head above water as it is. I do. I just. I just. I did. I, I recently. Maybe he's a listener. I don't know. Recently, get a tweet from someone, and I. I don't. I mean, it was. It's like. It's like. I think it. I mean, I know it was insulting, but I. I, I think it didn't. Wasn't meant to be. He's like a. So, uh, really serious question. Um, no offense, but how did it? How does it feel to work on a show after it's jumped a shark? <laughs> Well, was he referring to Glop? No, no. <laughs> no, no. We, 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 we towered over the, sh- the shark years ago. Yeah. Uh, no, he was referring to, to my first job, which is to Cheers, to write it, Cheers, and then to yeah. work out, and uh, and then to run it. And so he was he, he identified the, the the last season, which is the season I was executive producer of, as the worst uh, the season of Jump the Shark. And how how did that feel to me? And I thought, oh, there's a lot of ways to answer that. And I thought, or there's just no way to answer it. <laughs> and I'm it's not also, under any obligation yeah. to answer it. Right. Well, you know, my favorite correspondence story, or the saddest correspondence story I know, is that Margaret Mitchell, who wrote Gone with the Wind, was this very proper Georgian, you know, woman from Georgia, well-raised, with all sorts of poetess, obviously. And she wrote this, the most popular novel of, of, the, of her day. Sold millions of copies, you know, like Harry Potter. And people all over the country wrote her letters of thanks or, you know, appreciation or something like that. And Mitchell believed that it was her obligation, moral, social obligation, to answer every letter personally. And she spent 10 years answering correspondence and then died not having written another book because she spent all day writing thank you notes this is an actual truth it's like yeah, some well, that unusual gothic gothic story about how manners and right. the, you know civility destroyed her life well she could i mean she didn't yeah i mean 
there is that kind of a, a, a desperate futility of being a wasp that I understand. Um, and that's part of it. The other part of it is she, she didn't she didn't want to write the second novel. No, I mean, she wanted to that, have it written. This is this is a you know you you it's like well, it's, how do you follow she, how well, do you follow but, the most successful book ever written? Like right, obviously right. it's going to be hard. But the, the fact is that she was driven tormented by what she believed to be a social an unbreachable social right. obligation because she could have she could have not written the book. And not spend five hours a day writing thank you notes. But no. she wanted to write. She just didn't want to do that. It's like if people right. who want to like write letters, or they want to. I mean, it's the equivalent yeah. of cleaning up your desk before you get started, or like, uh, or I always yeah. like to be at inbox zero before I start anything for no yeah. reason. Inbox um, zero. Inbox, inbox zero, zero is when you have Jonah, no. Yeah. You know. Jonah, by the way, let me just make a quick uh, stab. So where where are you? What's your number right now? Um, hold on. Uh, three hundred and thirty-three thousand and seventy-five. <laughs> but I don't understand. I'm at, I, I'm at, I somehow somehow I'm I'm only at like about eighteen thousand. I don't even know. But I don't know why. You, why do you? Why? I it's mean, just, do you just, just never get rid of them? Yeah, you, it's it's a it's a it's a historical record of my life. But doesn't it take forever for your? Your, you know, the low or the Rob. So I had this idea. So I have tried over the years to eliminate and get to get to zero, right? right. And you do various things that you would do otherwise, like select. You go into some file and you do select all, right? And and all red, and then that crashes your email program, right? Because so, so many I see, I see. And then let's say you have a Gmail and it comes into your mail program, but you can go to the Gmail browser and go right. to gmail and do it that way but you can only have 50 emails at a time and if you have like a hundred thousand uh, emails you'll be like margaret mitchell you'll be doing this until until you get hit by a truck you know so i should also clarify um less people think that i'm embellishing that's the the native iphone mail app which also takes like my old aol yeah apple mail yeah. Yeah. the google mail app which only has jonah nro my old nro one and my current dispatch one is a mere 173,182. now is that everything is that like everything well i i don't know what you mean by it's pretty close to everything it's a lot but it's like that joke in uh, zoolander when uh, uh ben stiller has been taken off and brainwashed and he's been he's been gone a week, but he doesn't know it. And he comes home and he presses his answering machine button. You know, he's this male model, right. and it says, "You have twelve hundred messages." You know, that's, like, <laughs> that's how he knows that he's been gone more than an evening, or something like that. I, so, Jonah, I, Jonah, you I'll have one hundred and thirty-three thousand emails. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I. I don't know how why I escaped that, but I somehow did escape that. I, I don't I, look. Yeah. I'm, I also back in the old days got on a lot of political lists, so right. that all of these like every podunk. Oh, I get that too. Kind of you know, yeah, and it's just it's all in there. But it also is, you know, something else. You know, this is this is very close to what my father called nano talk, which is the level of talk below small talk. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who are desperate to hear more about our email. <laughs> more but. email anecdotes screams America. Well, you know, I want to talk to you guys about Biden's uh, speech uh, last night uh, yeah. because um, I do want to point out that he did say no American 
should have to choose between a paycheck and a job. Yeah, he didn't. He tried to fix it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of yeah. What he's saying. Yeah. yeah, it was not yeah. good. Yeah, it was a paycheck and a, and a job. So, right. uh, yeah. Can we all can we all vent our big our single biggest un, so far unexpressed complaint about the the thing last night? The Biden go, speech. Please yeah. go ahead. Okay. So mine, and this is partly because it's something I've been reading about a lot. Going back to the primaries, Biden, Sanders, Warren, Harris, all of them said at various times, climate change is an existential crisis. Climate change is an extinction level event or right. threat. Right now, the classic extinction level threat, at least in sort of Hollywood terms, is like a, a, an asteroid that is barreling towards Earth. And the whole idea is you drop everything, sort of like Reagan's inv- alien invasion. You drop everything, the world unites to fix the problem because it's a crisis. The house is on fire. We're all going to die. We're going to go the way of the dinosaurs. Got to fix it. That's how they say we should view climate change. And then last night, Biden says, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. <laughs> and like, imagine a president saying that about an asteroid like eight months out from destroying the planet. <laughs> well, the problem is that, you know, what you need to c- combat the asteroid is, of course, Ben Affleck walking in slow motion with an astronaut's costume to mm-hmm. the spacecraft that is going to go up and, dis- uh, and, but when and I destroy think of that, the asteroid. John, when I think of that, I think of child care. Right. Hold on one minute. I'll be right back. Uh, what are Rob, you guys today? Rob, we'll be right back. So, Jonah, that John. I think is an excellent problem to have uh-huh. with the Biden speech. Um, my, my problem w- was this. He didn't say if we can put a man on the moon, we can cure cancer. But he came kind of close to saying if we can put a man. He's like, why don't we cure cancer? I'm going to start... At the National Institute of Health, I'm going to start something like DARPA, the defense, I can't, you know, the advanced right, right, right. research right. project the agency internet. that invent, right, that invented the internet. I'm going to do that at the yeah. National Institute of Health, and we we can cure cancer. Let's do this. So, what does he think the National Institutes of Health is? No, it's I know. The advanced I... research projects <laughs> agency of health. That's right. On which we have, on which we spend like forty billion dollars right. a year, and on cancer alone, we already spend six billion dollars a year on the National Cancer Institute. What about a car? <laughs> Wait. Yes. Let me finish. <laughs> It'll blow your mind. It's electric. <laughs> Boom. Now, can we talk about that for a minute? Sure. Uh, I have a theory. That, it's, that I'm working on in my brain, and I, I will I'll, I'll say it out loud so you guys can tell me whether it's good, a theory or not. Um, electric car, the Prius, all that stuff, for long, it was like a, a way to virtue signal. Um, I, you know, we drive a Prius. That's what I heard all the time in, 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 in the entertainment business. You go, you have a meeting, and the executive would say something like, you know, I heard um, – I was driving in today in my Prius, and I heard on NPR a really interesting story. By the way, that is not a parody sentence. I, I, I have heard that sentence more than once. And Elon Musk then in, invents a car, and, um, and, and the car, he invents it, and he becomes one of the richest people in the world. And now everybody hates Elon Musk 
because he's taken away the thing about the thing that they liked, which wasn't that it was electric or that it was whatever it was or sustainable. It was that it was like it was virtuous. It wasn't making – you know, Elon Musk now, every time you buy a Tesla or think about a Tesla, it's kind of a luxury item. And so they hate him because he did the thing that they they wanted him to do, and he did it. And well, they, there, no, well, yeah. they, nobody, nobody likes a billionaire. It's that no, simple. No. Like Biden last night said, look, there are all these billionaires. They made all this money during the pandemic. It's terrible, basically, is what he said. Like, what did these billionaires make money on? They made money delivering things to our houses so we didn't have to go out of the house during the pandemic. Isn't that what they did? Yeah, no, I, the, 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 as my friend Kevin Williamson likes to say, you know, because there were all there have been all these pieces about how, uh, like that New York Times guy, whatever, a bunch of people have written these things about how we need to get, you know, do we need billionaires? We should get rid of billionaires and all this kind of thing. And Kevin always says, look, if your political ideology requires as one of its first steps to eradicate a class of people, you're going down a bad path. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, by any rational calculation, what you want is a lot more billionaires. You know, you want, I mean, you want more millionaires and you want more middle class people and all, but you want, you know, like, you, the more billionaires your society is throwing off means more rich people your society is throwing off. And yeah. maybe not in Russia, but it, but here. And, and, in like, Russia, billionaire goes to jail. The thing that drives me crazy is whenever you hear any of this stuff about how people talk about we're going to pay for it. I mean, like he literally said last night, we're going to pay for this by cracking down on billionaires and millionaires cheating on their taxes. You know, millionaires and billionaires don't cheat as a rule. I mean, Bernie Madoff notwithstanding, they don't cheat on their taxes because they can afford really good accountants who do things legally. Like <laughs> that's how right. Yeah, right. That's one of the things you get when you're a billionaire. And yeah. Yeah. regardless, you could literally, not figuratively, the way Biden means literally, um, you could literally confiscate not just the profits but the wealth. Yeah, one hundred percent. Go to their homes, take their stuff, and kick them out onto the street of the entire top one percent, and it wouldn't pay for a lot of the stuff. It wouldn't come close to paying for a lot of the stuff that they wanted. It wouldn't pay for his community college nonsense. Right. So, so let me ask you this. We just heard, just before we came on the air, that the audience for the speech last night was 11.6 million people. <laughs> Two million more than the Oscars. Okay. 11.6 <laughs> million people. America's the lowest, The lowest number that Trump's State of the Union's got including that first year thing, which isn't really a State of the Union, which is what this was, was $37 million. And I believe Trump's numbers were lower than Obama's, who were lower than Bush. So there's a kind of secular, there was a kind of secular decline. But this is literally right. a third of the number that Trump got. 11.6 million people watched this speech in which Biden essentially said, uh, I am going to spend $6 trillion this year that was never spent before. Not the federal government's overall spending is going to be $6 trillion. Between the coronavirus relief package and all the stuff that I'm proposing here, it's $6 trillion in new spending. Right. And we're going to do this with 50 senators and a majority in the House of five Democrats – and no one is listening 
No one is paying attention. Is that good for his prospects of getting this done because it's being done under the radar? Or is it a sign that there is absolutely no interest among the American people in the new president in any way, shape, or form? And therefore, the notion that he is going to rally the public to a new, new, new deal is insane. That's my question. Um, I would. I really hope it's the latter. I don't know that it's not the former. But um, you know, this is the point. I I made this point a lot when I used to be like just drenched in New Deal stuff because of my first book. Um, there was so much talk about Obama being the new FDR. You know, Time cover had him right. as like riding around in that car, look, you know, Photoshop to look like FDR and all that kind of stuff. Lots of new New Deal stuff and all that kind of thing. And the thing is, if you go back and you look at FDR. The first midterms after he was elected, the New Deal coalition got much bigger. Enthusiasm for the New Deal kept growing for, throughout his first term. None of that happened under Obama, and I'm very skeptical any of that's going to happen under Biden. But that doesn't mean that this boring shtick won't work for him, because a right. lot of people, right. people tuning out, has so far been to his benefit because they just don't want to hear people going, oh, he's a socialist, blah, 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 blah. They're just tired of all the talk, and that's that's to his benefit. The, the chief the attribute of the of Joe Biden and the Joe Biden administration for most voters, for the people who elected him, is that he he you don't have to watch him. Right. It's not an interesting show. You don't have to see him. You don't really have to hear him. He 11, 11 million – presidents in general – do better when they are not seen. That you can actually map their popularity on top of how often they're seen. And when they are not seen, they are more popular. When they are seen, they become less popular. They work with Trump, work with Obama, work with George W. Bush. Actually, no, it did not work with George W. Bush. Um, but it's going to work with Biden. That's why he was elected. So it's right. fine. Like I, I think that there were probably five million people, that eleven million people, who thought, "Oh man, we don't have to watch this ever again, do we?" Like there's nothing interesting going to happen here. Now, the second part of that is. When Obama, who failed at remaking the, you know, in many ways, his New Deal, uh, he came in at the begin at the tail end, or, or you know, the continuing financial collapse, crisis, disaster, uh, in uh, uh, unemployment at ten percent. Um, the economy today is growing very fast. Unemployment is at six percent. There is no crisis, so. You know, not there's one one of those the, the the one of those adages is don't let a crisis go to waste. But the first you got to have a crisis. Right. And so it the seems crisis. To me we're entering an era of good feelings, which is a problem yeah. for somebody who wants just to tell you how terrible everything is. So well, my look, daughter, just really quick, my daughter this morning or yesterday morning, time's a flat circle. Um, she was getting ready to go for school, go to school, and I was listening to I guess Morning Joe, and they said something about President Biden and my daughter stopped opening the fridge door, turned around and said to me, I keep forgetting that Joe Biden's president. That's his chief attribute. Right. That's what but makes right. him successful. This is a conundrum because you can understand how an era of good feeling can be created by a president who is no drama, keeps things quiet, particularly after Trump and all of that. What I can't make sense out of is the notion that the no-drama, boring president that nobody wants to pay attention to can marshal his party and resources to spend more money than anyone has ever spent in human history 
under the radar. That doesn't, I mean, that doesn't comport right. with any understanding of politics that I have. Yeah. I could be wrong. Politics could be changing. All of this could be different. We've just been through this incredible, dis, uh, you know, disruption for the last year, year, you know, uh, 14 months or whatever. And, and the heart has been punched out of everything. And so maybe it'll just happen sort of in this entropic fashion until the voters really get a chance to say, oh, my God, what on earth have you done? Which I believe Jonah, in a fantastic podcast earlier this week with A.B. Stoddard, they had this great conversation in which she pointed out, which I hadn't really thought of. There was no way that Biden got on November on, on election night that Biden thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be able to spend six trillion dollars. They assumed that they weren't going to have control of the Senate once that evening was over. Right. And therefore, they couldn't do much right. of anything. And then suddenly Trump screws the pooch, makes sure that Republicans lose the two seats in Georgia. And suddenly they have this tiny path through a door into Oz where they can suddenly, you know, like build the Emerald City from scratch. It And, like, it's all an improvisation. Like, they haven't right. thought through the consequences of this. It's all kind of happening on the fly. Well, I know. Well, I mean, sorry. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to that drawer in the, in the dream journal. And you look at it. I mean, that's look today. The New York Times has this fantastic pie chart with everything in it that that he wants, and it's in it's everything. It, it is there's nothing not there. The only thing not there is health care, which they pushed off because I think they think it's a better issue for midterms. You know, it's a wedge issue for midterms. Um, I think so. Like they have this giant like it's everything. What, what name something? Yeah, it's there. It's in there. I mean. The question really is whether people, after after learning that they can get money from the government directly, whether they're really going to hate this plan or whether he's going to – you know, which lesson is he going to learn? Is he going to learn that first lesson, that, that Bill Clinton's first term lesson, which is actually you're, you're better off just not doing anything for a while. All of your big plans, just let them go, um, and then you're going to cruise – to re-election and to be a very popular president. Um, I don't know whether he's going to learn that or not, but I, 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 I also don't feel like there's any appetite in the electorate to have another bruising political year. Right. Um, although, well, you know... Also, also, look, I mean, there are a whole bunch of factors here. One, I, I'm, I'm with doubt that, that Trump laid a lot of the predicates for this, for Biden to be able to do this, but we don't have to get into the Trump yeah. stuff. Um, but also... The Republicans are unwilling or unable to make serious arguments about against big spending stuff anymore. And I still think the, 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 the quintessential anecdote about that is the first um, COVID relief thing, which was, you know, what was it, $1.9 trillion? Um, the RNC issued two statements about it, both after it passed. <laughs> I mean, they just completely <laughs> didn't talk about it. And then... On this new one, on the new infrastructure, quote-unquote, infrastructure thing, uh, it was uh, Mike Gallagher, the congressman from Wisconsin. He was the first person to point this out to me. He was like, it is amazing how many sections of this bill cost exactly $100 billion. <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah. what they did is they, they picked the top number, and then they just grabbed stuff to get to that, yeah. like a game show. Or it's like they were told, okay, you have to spend $100 
in each aisle of the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> and that's their approach to this. Thing. And you know what's interesting? You don't have to go to a supermarket, Jonah, to get the kind of food oh, that you hello. really nice. need to have a delicious dinner. Spectacular. Because if you're stressed, if you're tired, you don't feel like cooking. Who's food this? that's fast doesn't have to be fast food. Freshly offers quality meals without the hard work of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. And that, that this is where Freshly comes in. It offers chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door. No cooking required, and you can skip the trip to the store. With new meals added each week, Freshly brings the convenience of chef-made nutritionist design pack classics right to your kitchen. Ordering is easy. The rest is even easier. Visit Freshly.com and choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like steak peppercorn, sausage baked penne, or their delicious chicken pesto bowl. Freshly can even fit your lifestyle with a variety of plans and meals to pick from that work for your dietary needs, preferences, tastes, and family size. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash glop. So stop stressing about dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash glop for 40 bucks off your first two orders. That's Freshly.com slash glop for 40 bucks off your first two orders. And a big thanks to Freshly for sponsoring the glop podcast. So you like that transition, huh? I, I like yeah, it. Although I didn't like it. I loved it. You know, but then again, you know, like the classic basketball teams, the pass is just second nature, and you're, you're not even thinking it through. You know, just you know, I, I the, the supermarket thing just came to me because I knew, yeah. even though I didn't know what the ad was going to be. It just there you go. You know, I, so I'm so I give you credit. Well, you know, so you, exactly you share, credit. You share credit. Share credit. I don't know whether. I don't know okay. if that's something that you like to do, but okay. you have to share here. So I created Rob, an opportunity. You did. So, <laughs> Rob, Rob Long, I gather that you've been canceled. Please please inform us yeah, I've been, about your cancellation. It's hard to believe. I'm, I'm so careful with my words and language. Uh, I, I was canceled. I, as you know, I do an additional – addition to this, uh, Joy, I do another podcast, weekly podcast called Martini Shot. Um, I would like you to uh, – if you're listening to this – uh, glop, and you don't subscribe, I really need you to go and subscribe to Martini Shot because I have been canceled in Ireland. I was on Irish radio, and they didn't like the one of my more, most recent uh, podcasts, uh, little commentaries. They're four-minute commentaries. They're, they're, they're nothing. It's just like it's four minutes. Of little, I tell little stories. And I told a story. It's called Offensive. And I told a story about why in the writer's room, television writer's room, you, 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 you come up with horrible jokes. They're, you know, we spent hours just telling each other the worst, most actionable, completely, completely unacceptably I mean, not politically incorrect, just reprehensible, offensive jokes to kind of loosen, lighten the mood. And then the, the, you, you always make a mistake when you tell that joke to um, a civilian, to a civilian who wasn't there. And mm -hmm. so we did one where we all had seen a, a BBC documentary years ago in which an actor uh, was trying to describe the rigors of working on location. And, and anyway, so I, I, I told this story um, and, I, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> They canceled me. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. And I'll be honest, no laugh is ever better or more satisfying to get from someone than one that forces them to betray their own sense of what's appropriate or in good taste or, or nice. 
Now, luckily for me, most of this happens within the safety of the writer's room where everybody else is afflicted with the same drive to push it, push everything past the zone of good taste. For instance, a few years ago, an American actor appeared in a foreign documentary about Hollywood, and as he was complaining to the camera about the rigors of location shooting, he said something like, oh man, location shooting is the worst. The worst. It's hard and long and difficult. It's like, it's like, and here he searched for the right analogy, it's like Auschwitz. And so I, the, 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 the punchline was that we in the office would then turn around and say things like, you know, we open the refrigerator and there are only little bottles of water out the big ones. Oh, man, no big Evian bottles of Evian? It's like Auschwitz. Or they wouldn't give you enough, you know, ketchup. It's like, it's like Auschwitz. As a joke, as a joke, as a joke, we would say that as a joke. And one of our writers went home for, I think, Thanksgiving, was at home on Thanksgiving, and there was only two kinds of pie. And he said, what is this, only two kinds of pie? What is this, Auschwitz? And then everybody got, everybody looked at him stricken, and he realized that his, uh, his wife's great uncle was, in fact, a survivor of a concentration camp. And, and like, and what can you say? You can't say uh, no. You, you see, here's why. What I do is funny. Is here, no, here, I, no, I know that's the whole. You can't do that. You're just. You're I just hang out with a bunch of people who are really insensitive about yeah. the Holocaust. You're that's really, why it's so funny. You're really screwed. <laughs> and um, and so I told that story. And I, that, by the way, that was the story leading up to the story that I was going to tell. And um, I was kind of wondering why I hadn't heard from them in a few weeks. Uh, and then I just got the email today, like um. Um, in an Irish accent, I guess they we, they, had, they had a complaint. It apparently was on a it, it was broadcast on a Jewish holiday. Um, oh, sweet. Yeah, so <laughs> it was like it kind of a meta cancellation because I basically broke the rule that I was saying was a rule. Um, and so I, I'm I'm no longer on Irish radio. See, the, this the best thing that could happen now yeah. because of this story. John Padoritz, editor of the flagship Jewish intellectual <laughs> magazine in America, yeah, drops your column. Well, he should. He should. Get any self-respect. But you know what I would do, Rob, if I were you? I would do a martini shot about how, yeah. oh, when I was in the writer's room, we oh, had a magic shillelagh. I said, oh, I'm Darby O'Gill oh. and the little people. Yeah. We were drunk all the time. Just keep going in that. That's right. um, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, All the troubles. Robert, All the troubles. Yeah. Robert Hammond might have been able to succeed. I mean, they're sensitive people for, you know, drunk. people who used to blow each other up all the time. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the weird thing about you is that you actually work in a business in which cancellation and the verb cancel is yeah. actually a professional thing. Yeah. Right. No, I literally it's was canceled. You've been canceled several times. Yeah, I've only been canceled. I've literally, I literally was canceled from. I mean, I don't mean mean like cancel culture. I mean, no, he called. He was sending me a very nice email and said, "We no longer um, are going to broadcast your material," which is basically what every network president said to me since 1993. Right. So you actually know no one else. For for most people, it's like, oh my god, cancel culture is so terrible. Hollywood is cancel culture. It's like, I'm yeah. sorry, you don't have the ratings. Yeah. We're canceling you. Um, but they, uh, they, they, you're paid. I mean, you know. <laughs> so, but I, I think we've talked about this on here before, but I love stumbling into colloquial phrases that come from, you know, other things that people forget where they really, you know, like hotshot was originally a, a, a form of weapon, like naval warfare, where they would heat up stuff so that it would catch fire when they shot it at another boat. Hmm. 
no one knows that kind of thing. You're all those Shakespearean phrases. Yeah. And one time I was at the track with a buddy of mine, some buddies, and we were talking about like the next race. We love to pretend like we were track guys. Yeah, touts. You know? And yeah, and so like one one time we had this rule. We had to go up to at least three strangers and say, "What do you know? What do you hear?" <laughs> and um. Uh, but one time we were like, I was saying to my friend Doug, um, who do you like in the next race or something like that? And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I got to check his track record. And we both just kind of looked up at each other and was like, oh, my gosh, that was the correct usage. That was the literal <laughs> wow. usage of that word. You know, I love that kind of stuff. We will you return know? to nerds at the track. <laughs> yeah, No, but, you know, it's funny because, it, it, you know, it is astonishing. My daughter who was in 11th grade uh, studying King Lear. And she had oh, to memorize yeah. this section of King Lear for a class. And it's this speech in Act 4 uh, where Lear says, basically, let's drop all this and become friends again, and we'll gossip together. And he says, we'll gossip about this and that, who's in, who's out. And I thought, would have said that the phrase, oh, yeah. who's in, who's out, was like from 1957. Sure. Right. You know, like right. the in-out list or something like that. It is, in, it is from King Lear. And it is, it, it, it is an absolutely amazing thing how Shakespeare essentially invented the modern English language. Yeah, I mean, I, have, I pulled it up because I love yeah. checking this every now and then. A list of phrases that we get from Shakespeare. Oh, God, and I'll just, great. I'll just, so like... Um, a fool's paradise, a foregone conclusion. Um, I mean, there's some that you know that are less surprising. A ministering angel shall be my si- shall my sister be. You know, that's not yeah. shocking. Mm-hmm. But a plague on both your houses, a rose by your name, a sea change, mm-hmm. a sorry sight. Um, turn it off and then cor- turn it on again. All corners <laughs> of the world. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, and this is, I'm still in the A's. There yeah. are like 135 things on yeah. this list. Yeah, brevity is the soul of wit. Boy, you know, yeah. that Earl of Sandwich could really write. You know, I uh, uh, one of my favorite classes in college was taught by the great uh, literary critic Harold Bloom, who was sort of like the. the it was like. Professor Zero Mistel, if you remember how Zero Mistel looked. Did, you, did he Mistel. call you darling? He called dear, everybody yeah, darling. Dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, and his, it was called Shakespeare and Originality. And he just, his, his, he just had five or six moments in Shakespeare. He said, these, these events, these moments in human psychology have never happened and never happened in world literature before this moment that we know. Never. <laughs> we, there is no moment in world literature before Hamlet talks himself into something that of anyone ever talking themselves into something like he actually kind of it, it may have been the, the absolute pressure of having to turn out this material so quickly that just forced him to be truthful right it forced him to just write the way people really are and how they really think um and that's i think that was that's the element of the genius really isn't the, the fact that he was a wordsmith so much is that he was incredibly observant and he just like he just represented the way people really are, the way people really behave. Um, and my, experience, my experience of, of Shakespeare, particularly over the last four or five years, is that if you told me, not that I believe in, you know, that uh, progress and that we're smarter than people were five centuries ago yeah, or, they people, were or whatever, right? But if you told me that Shakespeare was a person who came from the year 2500 
and was launched back in time and landed in the year, you know, 1567 or whatever it was, the year that he was born, and then sort of however it worked, uh, or came or arrived in London, you know, as a 22-year-old man, but he was actually from the year 2500. That would make more sense to me than the idea that this, the most intelligent perceptive person who has ever lived just kind of was there in a small town in England and showed up. I don't care whether it was him or it was was the Earl of Sandwich or or, or or Rochester or whoever the hell it was. Rochester. Rochester. Somebody somebody wrote it all, right? Somebody wrote it all. Right. Right. And that's the the miracle. And and, and the... But why, though? Why? Because you think that people are different? That, like, you you need to have a special insight? You think that you're more insightful now? No, that's what I was saying. But it is the freakishness of, of Shakespeare's... Um, I was going to say omniscience, but it's like every time you think you can put your finger on what he was or what he was up to, the Olympian quality of his intellect totally befuddles you. Like the greatest patriotic play ever written, right? right? Henry V, which contains the great St. Crispin's Day speech and is all about England and its greatness and defeating the French and all of that and this kind of rah-rah thing and Olivier makes a movie in World War II to rally the Brits by 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 personifying Henry V and all of that. And the play begins with a scene in which it is clear that Henry V is being manipulated by evil clerics who have compelled him right. to fight a war that is unjust. And that's how the play begins. So the whole thing deconstructs itself at the outset as if to say you are never going to be comfortable. There is no one answer like this is great. Here's a hero. Everything is wonderful. Like there is no such thing. That's something that nobody ever did before. No, in, I mean, in the history it's, of culture, it's, it's very, very hard to. It's re- it, it's it, the only way I can possibly explain it. Is, I'm sorry, you know, the obvious there was genius there, which of course there was, is is to just remind myself of when I do my best work. Right? I mean, I think when we all do our best work, is when we're not we're not monitoring our output or or writing for posterity. Right. That you're writing because you have you know you sold tickets already. And so you have to just be truthful, and you don't have time to construct this sort of perfect system. I mean, the, the the stories and the uh, the stories that he tells, the plots that he has that are the most sort of contained and symmetrical and and and, and balanced are the ones that are old, right? Old stories that come from legends. But the other stuff, he just is like, I, I got I got people waiting, and I have to write it, and so mm-hmm. I have to be. What do you do when you what do you do when you can't when you can't fake it you just have to write what's true i mean it's a the the, the physical world uh, word is like interoception right Inter- interoception yeah. i think like uh, well, feeling what you're feeling inside like feeling your heartbeat and feeling your lungs and like all the and like that the perception of the inside and that's kind of what he did and he was the first person to do it and i don't right. think anybody's done it better you see that's the that's the key point here because i, I take your point entirely about like doing it when you just you just got to commit, you know, that, and I think that explains a lot of Dickens, you know, yeah. the best stuff from Dickens is he just, he had a deadline, you know, and he had, right. he had to be pounded out. But like, I read, I don't know if you got, Pod probably has, you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Oh, uh, yes. 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 It's a terrible yes. novel. Oh, you know, yes. it's, it's yes. awful. It's, oh, al- you know, it's, it's no. an allegory and it's just, it's a dull, dumb read. It's only interesting 
sort of historically and sociologically and, and all of that kind of stuff about the context because it's the first novel or it's supposed to be the first novel or something along those lines. And the thing is, is like Shakespeare did all of these firsts back then and they're better. And like you watch, yeah. it's like when you go back and you watch um, Citizen Kane, so much of the stuff in Citizen Kane, I mean, Citizen Kane's a good movie, blah, 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 they teach you in film class, but so much of the stuff has been adopted that you're you kind of like, what's the big deal at this point? Because right. a lot of those techniques have been incorporated into them. You go back and read Shakespeare, it's better yeah. than yeah. so much of the modern stuff yeah. that relies on it. You know, which but is just it, but, really remarkable. But again, the other the other freakishness is that Ben Johnson, who is his contemporary, the playwright and poet, said, and this follows Rob's point that somehow there must have been a direct connection between Shakespeare's brain and his hand that went beyond anything anyone has ever had. Because he said he never blotted a line, meaning yeah. he wrote straight. Yeah. He wrote straight yeah. without blotting a line in iambic pentameter. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, I mean you know, that's a choice, though. That's a choice. And you know what else is a choice? What else is a choice is what you're going to give your mom for Mother's Day. Because if there's ever been a year to make the moms in your life feel loved and appreciated on Mother's Day, it's this one. After being cooped up and separated from family, friends, and community, moms can use a well-deserved boost. That's why this is the year to honor her with a heartfelt, sentimental gift the whole family can cherish together forever. Story Worth. Story Worth is an online service that helps your mother, grandmother, mother-in-law, and every mother figure in your life share stories through thought-provoking questions about their memories and personal thoughts. It's a fun new way to engage with them, especially if you can't be together in person. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mother a unique story prompt. Questions you've never thought to ask, like, what is some of the best advice your mother ever gave you? And if you could choose any talents to have, what would they be? StoryWorth has helped numerous families learn about each other in profound, special ways, and their testimonials will practically move you to tears. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all your mom's stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that shipped for free. So give your mom the most meaningful gift this Mother's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to storyworth.com slash glop. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash glop for $10 off. And we thank StoryWorth for sponsoring the glop podcast. Okay, so um, you mentioned the Oscars, Rob, and of course... As, as most people sort of know by now, I guess, because of the calamitous nature of it, uh, fewer than 10 million people watched the Oscars, a show that routinely scored 40 million viewers in the 80s, 30 million viewers in the 90s and the aughts, and, you know, in the 20 millions over the last couple of years. Right. A 58% drop in ratings this year from last. Um and there are all these existential places. It's only because of the pandemic and no one cared about the movie. Or it wasn't exciting or whatever okay. it is. What do you think? I think they're in trouble. I think it's a sign of real trouble. Look, I mean, the, the, the only benefit, I keep saying over and over again, to the Oscars is that they, it is a gigantic promotion platform for getting people to watch a movie after the Oscars, right? It's a huge three, four, ten hours, felt like ten hour long billboard for your material that you don't that earn media you don't have to pay for if you win it um or even if you're not nominated um and if <laughs> if they don't have that then they're in big trouble because what it means is that you gotta think about the movies that they're putting out and how they're going to promote them 
and promotion of a movie is really, 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 really expensive. So what it shows is just – and I, don't, I, I think the other thing it shows is that I don't think anybody really knows what a movie is anymore. I mean they know what a you know, a big blockbuster kind of – I guess they do movie, although they are perfectly happy to watch them on their own TVs. Um, I just don't think – I think if you ask somebody to define a movie – it's going to, you know, more often than not, it'll be like a five-part limited series on Netflix. And why not? Right. I, so what so are the Oscars for? I, I, so but I, just for clarity, and John, you can answer this too. Um, you think, so you're, not to be pejorative, but you're sort of offering a kind of Marxian analysis, which says that the means yes. of production have changed, yes. and that is, has resulted in a change in culture. You've fallen in my trap. Yes. So there's a there's a uh, alternative view, which is that the Oscars are no longer pos- popular because the show. I'm not saying you're wrong, but like the question is, there are multiple factors here. But another alternative view or complementary view is that the Os- people don't watch the Oscars because they know the show is going to suck. Yeah. Because they know they're going to get lectured to by yeah. a bunch of jackwads who are going to pee on them from a great height at the commanding heights of the culture. Sure. And they don't want to put themselves through it, particularly when the movies are now graded on these metrics, you know, look, diversity is great, yada, yada, fine. But that are graded on these woke metrics rather than on whether or not audiences actually like the movie. Yeah, but I can find and, 20 million Americans who wouldn't, who aren't offended by, who love being lectured to by woke uh, celebrities. It's like the uh, and, uh, the, the number. The, the, what, what's shocking about the number is how low it is. That it's. I mean, and yeah, you're right. It's a bore. It's it, it, every year people talk about how awful the Oscars. I don't think anyone's ever talked about how great the show was. But I, just if you don't even you don't even have a dog in the fight because you have never heard of any of the movies. And you don't right. even know what they are. Yeah. That that seemed to be okay for the business for five years because it like, well, you know, nobody saw Moonlight. And then Moonlight won. And then Moonlight made some money, right? This weird, mm-hmm. very eccentric, very specific movie. And it, it did okay. I mean, nobody saw um, Parasite. It was, weird, it was a weird South Korean kind of dark comedy. Thr- uh, who knows what it was? And then it won, and then people saw it. Like that, that, that was the goal. But if nobody sees, nobody watches the Oscars or cares, then the, <laughs> all the studios have to do this, this incredibly difficult thing, which is to make movies that people want to watch. Okay. So there hasn't been a host in three years because the hosts kept getting into trouble, right? Because right. They, somebody said something and they found surface to tweet or something, yeah. homophobic, whatever. Okay. I, I submit that, yeah, the show sucks. But that for a long time, people didn't think the show sucked. I mean, uh, right. maybe, I'm going to mention this. Johnny Carson. Billy Crystal yeah, hosted Crystal. the show nine times, and he had, a, he had a bit that he developed, right? He did a production number at the beginning of the show in which he did songs about all five Best Picture right. nominees. And then one of the best stand-ups who's ever lived, he did a stand-up routine making very gentle fun of the movies and the audience and all of that. And that was the first 15 minutes, and everybody in America loved it. And now Regina King, whom nobody in America knows who the hell that is, even though she's won 17 Emmys and an Oscar, comes out and says, "I should, you know, boy, it's lucky the verdict in the George Floyd trial came out the way it was, or otherwise I'd be burning this theater down. And you know what? I know you guys don't like hearing all this political stuff, but I got to say it anyway. And it's like, 
oh great you know what up yours like minute three i'm gonna sit here for three hours <laughs> yeah and get right. lectured by no, that's you, true by that's true you're rich in your fancy dress standing there in, in in union station in los angeles complaining that you're oppressed and you know what drop dead and i mean that's where joan is right i don't even know the, that there was no levity in that ceremony it was three hours and it was bleak and it was slow and it was boring right. and except for daniel kaluuya thanking his parents for having sex there wasn't a single fun and and the and the korean lady who won the best supporting actor oscar saying "Ooh, i'm excited to meet you brad pitt there was not a moment yeah. in which anybody laughed well, can I or ask did you, anything light? Can I can I, I, I let me let me submit this and see if I mean I, I agree with everything you're saying. I, I think that's absolutely right. I, but I think it's actually a larger problem, right? I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a problem specific to the progressive left, but I'm not quite sure it's the same, right? Which is uh, you can't you're not going to have any more fun. Fun is bad. I mean, if you see you, yeah, I mean, let me tell you something. You, I can say from personal experience, you tell the wrong kind of story on Irish radio, and they bet they're running out of town on a rail. Um, uh, okay, so you're not going to do any of that stuff. It's not on a rail. It's not on a rail. It's not on a rail. They just, they would just want you to they just want you to go away. Clearly. Take a wee, take a wee walk on a very short pier. Just go away now. Be gone with you. You've been canceled from RTE. Um, <laughs> I, wait, like oh, I have a thing. I was going to say. Can I'm I say sorry. it? Yeah. Lapsing into the weird yes. leprechaun voice that I see the doing? Yes. yes. But I like it too. Uh, Frosted lucky yes. charms yeah. are magically delicious. <laughs> uh, okay. No, yes. Stop. Here's here's what I was going to say. There is this kind of I think misreading of the national mood or this kind of slow. I, I, I sense it now, this idea that, like, the, from Hollywood, you just hear, no, 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 things are really bad. Things are really bad. And even if you watch, you know, conservative media, it's all, we are in the end times. It's over. Everything's a disaster. And I just don't see any, like, I don't see the American people or the population as a whole having that attitude. They seem extremely ready to celebrate. It really does feel to me just walking around town and seeing people in restaurants and like in New York City of all places. It it feels to me like people are ready to go on like a, a national spring break. Right, but it's not just that. When you are in the middle of a crisis, you want diversion. Yeah, that's you don't true. want constant reminders of your grief and anxiety and yeah. sorrow and everything like that. You know, it's like Sullivan's Travels. You're on a chain gang. You want to watch a Mickey yeah. Mouse cartoon and laugh. You don't want to watch something that's going to bring you down. Anthony, Anthony your fans, thirty-eight. That's what you want to see. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I, I would. Be, I think you're exactly right. I think there's this huge pent-up demand for people to have the sticks pulled out of their asses. And if we talked before about how brilliant and how it was sort of the end of an era of Hollywood being willing to take these kinds of risks. That uh, Tropic Thunder was this amazing movie. I bet you, if you could make the same equivalent kind of movie with the equivalent kind of fingers in the eyes, without you know, you know there was a, a lovingness to Tropic Thunder, while at the same time being incredibly transgressive. If that came out today, I think it would be a mass hit. Yeah, and all of these—that's not funny writers 
would lose their minds because right. they would be right essay after essay how problematic it is. This is a sign of burgeoning hate in America, and everyone else would say, screw you. Let's go back 50 years. 1971, I believe, maybe it was 1972, but I think it was 1971. Clint Eastwood makes this movie called Dirty Harry, right? Sure. Cities are on fire. Crime is going crazy. There is this semi-psychopathic cop going after the Zodiac killer, right? Uh, and he says that, gives that whole speech. You and I are you wonder if I, No, but it's, <laughs> I was like, you're wondering if I fired six shots or maybe sure, five. Sure, right, right. Right? I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Um, that was 1971. That movie comes out. Vincent Canby in the New York Times says, this is fascism. Pauline Kael in The New Yorker says, this is a fascist work of art. <laughs> yeah. It is evil. It is monstrous. It is yeah. terrible. And it made eight squillion bajillion dollars. And 50 years later, Clint Eastwood is 93, 7,000 years old, directing yet another movie. Unfortunately. Because he was made into an icon right. by this right-wing vigilante story that was... Right. That came bubbled up from the national unconscious. What's, what's interestingly interesting about that movie, which I've, I've said before, but it's worth it is an almost shot for shot remake of a movie set in San Francisco about a, a serial killer called The Sniper, mm -hmm. uh, which they share some of the production personnel on that. It was 20 years before, 51 to 71. In The Sniper, the hero is the police psychologist who says, we just have to understand this person. <laughs> and in that scene, there's a kind of a rhyming scene in, in Dirty Harry where someone says, but Inspector Callahan, don't you want to understand him? And he goes, yeah. yeah. I want to I yeah. understand him, I want to kill yeah. him, I want to and then, and kill, yeah. and pick him up and kill you with him. Um, yeah. yeah, so all, that's, all that is true. I think that there is probably something there. I, I would just say that there is the, the only thing that gives me, that makes me worried, or not worried, but it isn't as great. It won't be as fun a victory for fun culture. Is that all of these things are being pushed into your private sphere. So you're not going to a movie theater to watch Airplane or the South Park movie or mm -hmm. Team America or Dirty Harry anymore. You're not cheering with a group of people and feeling like, oh my God, the world isn't insane. Instead, you're watching that stuff at home on your home tv in anonymous privacy and i think that's just not going to be as good yeah so there's a, you raise an interesting point which i think has a broader application yes it's all it was, my points too jonah as you know <laughs> um it was, it was political scientist susan mcwilliams i think who uh, i at least i first learned this from her um, I think it was like 2007 was the first year in America where bottled water outsold beer, and um, or at least bottled beer, canned beer, whatever. And part of her point was this is, you know, it's sort of like, you know, metaphorically like the transition from mm -hmm. boom boxes, which defined our youth in New York for a good period of time, to the Walkman, where 
because of the nature of technology, things get individualized. Bottled water is what you drink, like, on a friggin' treadmill by yourself listening to your, right. you know, iPod. And beer is what you drink with other people socially. Bowling and, around, right. Yeah, and there's just this retreat into, you know, into smaller and smaller units, which I think, you know, is a big part of Evolve Within stuff, and, and it's it's affecting movies. But I... I also just think, you know, people want to go to the movies. I mean, we we don't need to revisit will movie theaters survive yeah. conversation for the 10,000th time. Yeah. If, if Rob has a veto on superhero movies, I have a veto on yeah. that conversation for a while. Um, but uh, I think I just think there's an enormous pent-up demand. And, and when you were talking about the early 70s before, John, I thought you were going to talk about not about uh, uh, Dirty Harry, but about Blazing Saddles. Hmm. You right. know, I mean, people forget 19, Blazing Saddles comes out in 74. That was a time where, what, 1771 had the most domestic terror attacks in American history. It was something like one bombing a day for 18 months. You had just gotten through the 1960s with all of the racial stuff and all of that. You had Watergate and blah, 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 blah. And Blazing Saddles comes out, and it's just, like, replete with the N-word and all these kinds of things. And, hey, where are all the white women at? And it was a huge hit. And, uh, you know, and I think, I, I think, I just don't know that institutionally Hollywood has the the will to put out the products that the audience actually wants. No, but you right. watch what you watch what the audience is doing so they're spending an hour a day on TikTok. Um and they 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 are creating kind of transgressive stuff. Like if you if you get you tune your algorithm right on TikTok, you can yeah. see some really funny stuff that young people are doing that's incredibly over the 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 I mean stuff that I you could get you could would get you kicked off of Irish radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, speaking of terrorists, I mean, if, if, if I know people, uh, we, we aren't doing this on video so no one can see it, but the wall that you two are looking at behind me yes, in 1974 was yes. blown up by the Weather Underground. Actually, I think it was 1971, I think in fact. Four. Was it 71 or was it 74? I think it was, it was, yeah, the Weather Underground next door to Rob, uh, uh, that was Bernadine Dorn and... Uh, uh, Chesa Boudin, the DA of uh, the, <laughs> that amazing? The, 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 the child of two of the people who were involved in the blowing up of that house is now the DA of San Francisco, who will not prosecute anybody. Doing a problem. terrific job, by the way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, yeah. No, no, right. It was, it was uh, 1970. It was the March 6th, 1970. Okay. Right. But, I mean, here, my, my thinking is this, which is that the, 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 the effort is cancellation is an important thing because it is an effort to uh, quash things or to, you know, to suffocate things in the crib, right? right? That's why Simon & Schuster signs up the former vice president of the United States to write a memoir, and 300 people at Simon & Schuster say, we should not be publishing Mike Pence's book because he was associated with Donald Trump. Why? Why can't they publish his book? Because why what is important, right, but what is important to them is to ensure that nothing emerges, that it's all it's all snuffed out at the outset, that you create the conditions under which people who disagree with you do not even begin to speak. It's not yeah. that you drown them out. It's not that you your stuff is more popular. It is mu- you you 
choke them off. So do you think, I mean, so, uh, you know, as a as a founding member of Ricochet, you know, it's something that we think about a lot. And we think about it with our podcast. Like, uh, are we going to, will somebody yank us off the server? I mean, we've, we've actually protected our servers very, very well. And we protected our, our distribution plans. But part of it feels like sometimes we think like, well, maybe we should be doing more and offering more people who write and think a kind of a safe place, the substack for free thinkers. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether we're, we're going to go that route. I, I hope we. I hope that the culture doesn't need that. Um, but it does seem to me like there's the that you're you're going to be able to see anything you want just privately. You're not going to be able to line up for it, and you're not going to be able to see it with a bunch of other people. You you can't actually uh, meet in numbers and enjoy anything in numbers. And so I, you know, that 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 to me is. Uh, uh, I I think we're going to miss that. But the thing is. Uh, as a sort of a conservative meta historical point, that very fact builds up huge reservoirs of demand. Yeah. And you, you're going to get to a point where that demand is going to be so great that people are going to behave badly when they get the thrill of doing stuff in crowds. Right. You know, and that's historically a big part of populism. You know, there's this wonderful line from this uh, this pastor, I can't remember his name, I quoted, I've quoted it a bunch of times because I think crowds are bad things. I don't like them. And he says, he makes this point, he says, um, the clergy, theologians, religious people, they're very good about talking about poisonous forms of, the two forms of poisonous transcendence. One is um, uh, unhealthy obsessions with sex, and another one is unhealthy obsessions with drugs or alcohol. But they almost never talk about unhealthy obsessions uh, with the form of false transcendence you get from crowds, from the just being yeah, in right. a mob, being with a bunch of other people. Where, and that's one of the, that sort of that feeling of, you know, we can do anything we want because we've got strength in numbers. Well, there is a, is, you know, there's a, yeah, the, the, uh, the pioneering sociologist, Emil Durkheim, called this phenomenon collective effervescence. And it's the idea right. that in, in mass settings, uh, people lose their not only lose their self consciousness but lose their individuality, right? And they experience emotions that are dominated by the emotions of people in proximity to them, and not of their own. And it's a very unique thing, and it's a it's a real social it's a life it's a you know no, it's really powerful. Yeah. And of course, it is very easy to marshal it for evil. And it's not necessarily that easy for it to be marshaled for good, because obviously it's much easier to generate negative emotions, as we were saying about emails an hour ago, than it is to generate positive emotions somehow. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, who knows? I mean, if you if you're going to war and you want everybody to sign up, yeah. you can. You certainly can do that in World War One. Sure. Uh, but I do remember this. This actually happened. A friend of mine was like going to go to the Writers Guild uh, meeting years ago and 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 vote against going on strike. Uh, and uh, I could not attend that meeting, and I, I had already sent him my vote to not go on strike, and he said, I'm going to go in, and I'm going to vote against it. Um, and he went in, and then he called me afterwards, and I, I voted for it. I said, why? He goes, I don't know, the crowd, everybody was, like, cheering. It just felt like I just, you know, I don't know. And now yeah. I'm re- He said, now I regret it, but at the moment, I just thought, yeah. And I, that, that's true, that's true. Although... That said, I mean, it doesn't mean everything and all those experiences are bad. The, the, the going to a movie and laughing with people at something that you know is wrong is just qualitatively different from la- laughing about it at home. I mean, 
And right, the, the right. idea of turning this kind of humor or these kinds of things or, or, or you know, taking a, a, a decent, uh, uh, talented writer and, and kicking him off Irish radio, um, <laughs> a person who never heard anyone, uh, is, um, is uh, too bad. It's, uh, you know. Well, I, for one, intend to have... <laughs> I intend. I intend to discuss this matter at the at the local pub. With That's all the people there. Good. Thank you very much. With all the uh, people there, you didn't even have a finish to it. Talking to the pub. No, I was working on the yeah, trying yeah, to keep the accent. Yeah, right, it's hard. It's hard to do it all, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. trying to improv uh, improv the words while keeping sure. up the accent because you I'm always insult my accents, Rob. No, this is a good one. You see, do that. Dig your dick, Van Dyke. Well, that's not a good one. I mean, we all agree that that's not a good one. Rapid fire, worst accent in a movie. Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, I think, is probably the worst accent in the movie. Here we go. Roomy for everyone. Gather around. The constable is responsible. Now, how does that sound? Mm. Uh, John Malkovich and Rounders. Oh. Oh, excellent. Wait, He beats me. Straight up, pay him. Pay that man his money. Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany, of course. Oh, oh that's good. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Goldivery, I broke this. Oh, darling, I am sorry, but I lost my key. But that was two weeks ago. You cannot go on or keep ringing my bell. You disturb me. You must have a key made. Well, I, I have a good one. Which Ricardo Montalban is the Japanese mob boss in Hawaii. Oh, that's pretty good. good. Yeah. But I, I, I have this one, which is, um, by the way, Ricardo Montalban played a Japanese guy in the movie Sayonara also. For some reason, Ricardo Montalban was like six foot Japanese. eight. Japanese, yeah. Six foot eight and Mexican oh, with shoulders, nice. with linebacker shoulders, ended up somehow being a, okay. So, um, no, here's a, here's a reverse thing. So there's a movie called High Fidelity with John Cusack. And the, his love interest, he's it's set in Chicago, the, the novel is set in London, and his love interest was a, a Norwegian actress who was in those, you know, Norwegian, uh, radical Norwegian, the Dogme movies, named oh, yeah, Eben Yelge or something oh, sure. like that was her name. And she's pretty blonde, and so she's his... Eben Yelge knew how to think. Yeah, so they grew up together in, like, Buffalo Grove, Illinois, John Cusack and, and this character played by Eben Yelge. And then there's some scene where they're sitting like on a stoop drinking a beer or something. And she's like, oh, God, you remember the day that we went to the Dairy Queen? You know, like that. You know, it was like, you know, like, couldn't they say she was an exchange student who came when she was 16 yeah. to explain this? No, it's like she grew up next door to him. And no one could tell her. Like yeah, she, she sounded like I, I, I do. I, 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 I mean, she's from yeah. North Dakota. They have kind of weird Scandinavian accents. I, you yeah, know. That, well, that's true. Or, or yeah, or um, uh, Lawrence Welk, right? But, but no, but she did sound like the Swedish chef. And there that, a, so there's that bad accent. There's a moment in the Harvey Pekar play. I don't know if it made it to the movie called American Splendor, mm-hmm. in which he's telling a story about the a girl he was going out with, a girl with the English accent. Hello, Harvey. Let's go and have a pizza or something. And then he finally <laughs> confronts her and says, w- w- "Where did you, 
Where did you get the accent? She was, oh, well, when I was young, my family, we moved around a lot. You know, Pittsburgh, Albany. (laughs) (laughs) My parents knew, I'm trying to remember who it was, like a a famous intellectual of the 1950s, who was a very florid guy, like a, a famous professor. I just can't remember who it was, who spoke in this extraordinary florid accent and spoke like this, and someone once said to him, you know, Professor Smith or whatever his name was, where wh- where did you get your accent? He was like, complete affectation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, and then there's my favorite case, which is Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith from Lost, Lost in Space, Space yeah. mm-hmm. right? Uh, Jonathan, God, what was his name? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, Jonathan Harris. I mean, it gave off a real pedo vibe. Oh, yes. really Jonathan Harris. Come over here, little Billy. Jonathan Harris. Let's get inside the big <laughs> machine. Name, yeah. Whose name? Whose name was? Candy in the saucer. Yes. <laughs> right. And the saucer's in my yes. pocket. Yes. Oh, oh, William, let's go off into the let's go mm-hmm. off into the brambles together. <laughs> and the robots. Yeah, like, Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> let's play a game. Guess what I'm sitting on. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, he, anyway, uh, he his read, name yeah, he his read. name was Lebel Daniel Charasushin from the Bronx. Sure, his parents were Sam and Jenny Charasushin. They lived in a six-story tenement, uh, and he worked in a pharmacy as a stock boy, and and went to the Yiddish theater. And then he invented himself this accent. Yeah, see, uh, uh, he actually did. A, he was uh, did a voiceover for a friend of mine in advertising, um, and he sort of was sitting there waiting to be called. And he was talking with two of the other, you know, I guess the art director. I don't know what they do in advertising. And he just and they didn't really know who he was. So he looked at them. And he said, "You probably grew up with me." <laughs> and they had to say, "We didn't. I, we don't. I'm sorry, sir. We don't. Are you are you here for a, are you here for a reading?" Yes, you. I'm sure you grew up with me. <laughs> and they just they had no idea. They had to go go into the booth like, who is that? And then, <laughs> then somebody had to tell them there was a show. Because if you're young enough, it, you don't have any connection to that show. You're like, well, you know, see, there was a show, and and then it's like it takes half an hour to explain it. <laughs> oh, hey, how how you doing? You're the guy from the thing with the space. It had one sound effect. Yeah, that they use for everything, yeah. like people vanishing, like that. Yeah. Was, yeah, right. Yeah, but um, like I, I don't know if I can rat out the people I know in real life who've done this, but there is this weird thing. Are they on this podcast? Where certain people <laughs> in certain contexts just start speaking in weird and in, in like British accents. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like. Uh, there was a guy in publishing that I knew a little bit, in the, you know, f- first through my mom and then through uh, other places in the 90s, who every now and then we would hear someone say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Um, he's just got such a lovely British accent. And you'd be like, what, what, what are you talking about? And, um, you know, and I, I, and I know another person, I'll tell you after the, we stop recording yeah. um, about this, but it's like, I, this ha- there are people out there who do this when they're nervous. They just yeah. start talking in foreign Hilar- accents. Hilaria Baldwin. Yeah, yeah exactly there you right. go. Hilaria there you Baldwin. go. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, she really can't even know, know how to spell the name. It's like, it's the auditory version of Rachel Dolezal. Right? Oh, that is a very... Buy identity on the cheap. Yeah. 
Can I can I maybe conclude with this story? It's a Hollywood story, but it's like one of my favorite cultural stories of the 20th century. So there was a, a director named Fred Zinnemann made made uh, from here to eternity, made a man for all seasons. You know, one Oscars was, you know, one of the like four or five giants of mid-century American movie making, you know, Spielberg, sure. Lucas type then. Okay. So he, he gets into his 60s or 70s. He is brought in to, he's going to pitch a movie or he goes to some studio, young studio executive in hip Hollywood in the 1970s who who uh, sits him down and says, Mr. Zimmer, it's a great, great pleasure to meet you, but... Um, can you just tell tell me tell me something about uh, your work, like what you've done? And Zimmerman, who had a thick German accent because he was a, a German Jewish refugee, looked at the guy and said, "You first. <laughs> yeah, and you and, first. And that's 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 Fred Zinnemann. It's Fred Zinnemann. Oh, that's I heard I heard that story, Billy Wilder. No, it's actually Fred. Z- it was oh. it, it was Fred Zinnemann. Yeah, that, I heard the story uh, about Larry. Stewart. Who, who, by the way, was <laughs> well. No one, no one didn't know what Larry Storch had done. John. <laughs> yes. Well, that, no one told that story about Forrest Tucker because they told different stories about Forrest Tucker. Oh, there you go. They told Merle uh, Milton Berle type Merle. stories about Forrest Tucker. Oh, sure. Yes, sure. Uh, about uh, priapism and uh, and the like. Any anything you guys want to recommend? Yes, Jonah, I, you want? I yes. would like to recommend that people uh, uh, go to Martini Shot and subscribe to it. And um, and then go on to iTunes or whatever it is, and then give it a like five stars, and just and and, and you know what, and and strike a a, a blow against cancel culture, because no, uh, no. Rob, you're thinking too small. We need to start a whole like Twitter, Instagram, you know, campaign of people smashing bottles of Guinness, pouring it all out, just re- boycotting Ireland in its entirety. Well, I don't want to punish. The, I don't want to punish the good, the wonderful people of the Emerald Isle. I just, I just want, um, I want Americans listening to this to know that we're in the fight for our lives, and if they would just go and give me a, a, a like, like and and like and recommend uh, and subscribe, like and subscribe. That's that's how we're gonna get out of this. That's the only way we're gonna get the out. Only of this. way we get out. Jonah, what when are you on TV? I'm never gonna be on TV again. So yeah, I leave to I, you. I, I, I'm going to be on Jerry Baker's Fox Business thing this oh, tomorrow. Okay. Um, I want you. And then other than that, uh, nothing. You got nothing? I got nothing. I okay. Got nothing. Subscribe to The Remnant. Listen to The Remnant. You know, it's a good podcast. Um, maybe subscribe to The Dispatch. You can do that kind of stuff. But, you know. But but um, neither one of those things have been canceled. So it's, like, not no, urgent. Not yet. It's not an emergency. It's not, not a content yet. emergency. No. And of course, commentarymagazine.com. We give you a few free reads. They ask you to subscribe. I do this daily podcast. If you haven't started listening to it, you could listen to it, but you probably get enough from me here. Who knows? I don't <laughs> Great know. Great pitch, John. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. If you, if, you, if, you don't listen, if you don't subscribe to our podcast, it's like Auschwitz. <laughs> you know what? It's fun. You know what? It's just it's fun. Like it's, it's, like, it's like Auschwitz. You've got to be able to laugh at life. All right, well, we've gone on very long, but we didn't talk about superheroes. And so Rob, no, we, Rob yeah. is our superhero. So, so thank you. Well, I, I, as you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a victim. I'm a victim of cancel culture. Yes. Um, well, like well, well done. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it's not like Auschwitz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the commentary editor has to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, there. it's not like Auschwitz. <laughs> 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 All right. Bye, everybody.
everybody. Bye-bye. Later. When Irish guys are smiling, shirt is like the morning spring. And the lilt of Irish laughter, you can hear the angels sing. When Irish hearts are happy, all the world seems bright and gay. When Irish eyes are smiling, I steal your heart away. There's a tear in your eye, and I'm wondering why, for never should be there at all. Such power in your smile, sure stone you'd beguile, never a teardrop should fall. Your sweet lilting laughter, like some fairy song, eyes twinkle bright as can be. Should laugh all the while and all other times smile. Now smile, a smile for me. When Irish eyes are smiling, church is like the morning spring. In the lilt of Irish laughter, you can hear the angels sing. When Irish hearts are happy, all the world seems bright and gay. Irish eyes are smiling, they'll steal your heart away. For your smile is a part of the love in your heart, and it makes even sunshine more bright. Like the linnet's sweet song, crooning all the day long, comes your laughter and light. No, we do. So the rule is we have to talk about we have to talk about a superhero movie every single one of these. Superhero movies have to be in every single one. Ricochet. Join the conversation.